So that's what we come to this morning. We're make, making our way sequentially through the Gospel of, Ma- of Luke, and um, that means that we come to passages like this. If we're going to deal honestly with Scripture and faithfully with Scripture, we take the next passage, and whatever we see, we will learn from, and I think this morning we'll be greatly blessed as we consider this genealogy that Luke provides us for Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do as we make our way through, these, uh, through the genealogy this morning, we're not going to go name by name. Praise the Lord. Uh, We're not going name by name. Um, We're going to look at it from a theological standpoint. Why does Luke put it here? What's its significance? Why why here? Why does he throw this 77-name genealogy right at the end of chapter 3 as Jesus begins his ministry? I mean, Matthew does it when he begins his life back in chapter 1, actually before he's even born. So why why does Luke choose to do it here? Well, he does have a purpose. And uh, hopefully we'll see that this morning as we dive in to Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. So this morning, what we're going to consider, Judson, would you grab my water for me right there and bring it up? Thanks. Left it there. Um, We're going to look at uh, three things this morning. We're going to look, first of all, thanks, bud. The the reason for the genealogy. Why is it here? Why did Luke put it here? And then we're going to talk about the redemption that's in the genealogy, why this genealogy is actually really, really good news. And then finally, the relevance of the genealogy. What does it have to do with our lives? So those are the three aspects of the genealogy we're going to look at this morning. So first of all, the reason for the genealogy. What's the reason for the genealogy? Well, I think we can simply answer this question, and then I'm going to unpack it a little bit in more detail. But the simple answer is Luke is trying to answer a question for his readers, which is, is Jesus qualified to be God's promised son, who was promised back in Genesis 3.15 to crush the head of the serpent and deliver people from death and sin. Is that who Jesus is? And this genealogy is there in part to give us an emphatic yes, that Jesus is qualified to be God's promised son. Luke's genealogy of Jesus comes smack dab in the, at the end of chapter 3, but it's in the middle of a narrative that has been ongoing and will continue. Not at the beginning, like in Matthew's gospel, but in the middle of the action right here in Luke's gospel. Now, we know Luke does nothing by accident, right? Right at the beginning of Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 1, he said he's intentionally writing a very orderly account. So he's not put this genealogy in here just because he needs some... Th- some place to put it. Well, might as well put it here. No, he has a theological reason for putting the genealogy here. And I'm going to give you several purposes that I think it, it lands here. First of all, one way of seeing this genealogy function is that it, it serves as a, as a place marker to, to mark the shift between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. Right, Because what we see at the beginning of chapter 3 is John coming on the scene. Remember, Luke, Luke begins his gospel with these two main figures, John and Jesus. And John is going to be the forerunner, is going to go, the way, go, go before him and prepare the way for him. And then Jesus is going to come in behind him and, and follow up and continue that ministry that John began. So John prepares the way in the first 20, chapter, 20 verses of chapter 3, and then what happens? Jesus shows up on the screen on the scene. He gets baptized by John in the Jordan, and then the Father announces, "This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased." The Holy Spirit falls upon him. Listen to him, and then the genealogy comes. So this genealogy is meant to serve as the passing of the torch 
of sorts between John's ministry, who prepared the way, and to Jesus' ministry, which is about to commence. But I think Luke is doing even more than that here because Luke wants to make clear exactly who Jesus is as he begins his earthly ministry. Look at verse 23 again. He says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Now, what's the significance of that? Why does he throw that little piece of information in there? He was 30 when he began. Well, of course, he's trying to detail facts. But it also is significant that Jesus begins his ministry at the age of 30. Luke introduces his genealogy not at the start of Jesus' life, but at the start of Jesus' ministry when he was about 30 years old. Now, 30 is a striking number. When did priests in the Old Testament typically begin their ministries? 30 years old, according to Numbers chapter 4. The same age at which David became king in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And Ezekiel, that was the same age that Ezekiel saw the prophetic visions of God in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 1. So by inserting his genealogy at this stage, Luke is connecting Jesus' ancestry to his ministry as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. By tracing it back to Adam, not just Abraham, he portrays Jesus as the prophet to the nations, as a priest for all peoples, and as a king of the whole earth. So there's a glorious reference to Jesus' identity here even embedded in the fact that he began his ministry at 30 years of age. So this genealogy is going to serve as a credential that this man who is beginning his ministry at 30 years of age is no ordinary man. However, some will bring up, in fact, critical scholars and things like that will bring up some discrepancies that they see that exist between Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke's genealogy here in Luke chapter 3. For example, Matthew gives the forward order. He gives the order from Abraham all the way to Jesus. But Luke gives the backward order. He, gives the, he starts from Jesus and then goes all the way back to God. One controversial point is that Joseph's father is listed as Jacob in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, but as Heli or Heli in Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Now, what would be an explanation for that? Well, you have to remember that ever since the early third century, people have speculated that Joseph had, had adopted or had two fathers, that either because he was legally adopted or because he was the child of a leveret marriage. Now, a leveret marriage was the Jewish, Jew, a Jewish custom in which if a man died without children, his brother would take and marry the widow so that they could preserve the family line. If so, then Joseph was the son of both Heli and Jacob. But if you notice something already in Luke chapter 3, there has already been a reference to a leveret marriage in Luke chapter 3. Remember Herod that's mentioned by Luke at the end of Luke chapter 3 before Jesus is baptized? Herod was the one who had John the Baptist arrested and eventually killed. Herod had married Philip's wife, angering observant Jews and eventually getting John the Baptist beheaded. So Luke's account of Jesus' adult life begins with a man enacting not, enacting not a true leveret marriage, but an adulterous leveret marriage while his brother was still alive. And then we read in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, that Jesus 
was about 30 years of age when he began his ministry, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, why, they, why is, it they, is that comment added? Or as it was thought, or so it was supposed. Well, legally, we know that jo Jesus was Joseph's adopted son, but Joseph was not his biological father. As Gabriel explained to Mary, Jesus would be called the Son of the Most High and the Son of God in Luke chapter 1. But we even find an example in John the Baptist last week or two weeks ago. Remember when we considered his words that G when, he, when, when people were starting to approach John and say, you're the Christ, you must be the Christ. And he said, no, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the shoes of the Christ. Now, interestingly, untying a sandal strap was the key moment in the process that released a man from a leveret marriage. So perhaps John was declaring himself not just beneath Christ, but also unworthy to place himself as Israel's true husband. John is just the best man. He's not the bridegroom. Christ himself is the bridegroom. Now, we can't know for sure. We can't know for sure all the reasons that Luke gives here for his genealogy. But in Luke, Jesus' descent from David is traced through Nathan, while Matthew is traced through Solomon. And some say that Matthew is giving us Joseph's genealogy and Luke is giving us Mary's genealogy. Or others will say that Matthew is giving us the royal line of David, and which are like the legal heirs to the throne, and Luke is giving us the actual family line of Joseph. Could be. We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. But if that's the case, it seems that Luke wants the descent from David to evoke not the high status of royal descent that Matthew contains, but the low status of David's humble origins that Luke gives us. Both are, of course, true, but Luke is having a theological purpose for why he is choosing to share this information about Jesus. And this is why Luke traces Jesus' descent through Joseph, from David, all the way back to Adam. Because according to this genealogy, Jesus was descended from David not through Solomon and the kings of Judah, as in Matthew's genealogy, but through David's little-known ninth son, Nathan. This genealogy mainly consists of entirely unknown names between Nathan and Joseph. And this means the Messiah is to come not from the line of David's royal successors only, but from David's own family origins in Bethlehem. Now, we've already noticed that back in chapter 2 of Luke, where Jesus is actually born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Micah's prophecy. But the new king is not to be born in the royal palace in Jerusalem, but in insignificant Bethlehem where David's own story began, among the ordinary people, because Bethlehem was the city of David, but not of any of David's sons through Solomon. Again, all of this is somewhat speculative because we, Luke doesn't tell us the reason for the genealogy, but I do think there's one important structural thing that does get at the heart of what he's trying to communicate in this genealogy. More than all the questions that surround it and what names fall where is the idea that there is an important factor embedded in the structure of the genealogy itself. There are 77 names listed. And if you'll remember, seven is a significant number in the Bible. It's the number for fulfillment or uh, perfection. And there are 77 generations between Adam and Jesus. 
which is the number of ultimate fulfillment. Jesus rests in the 77th position. Now consider how he lists 77 generations from Adam to Christ. That number would point to the Sabbath. It reminds us of the 77-fold vengeance of Lamech in Genesis chapter 4 and the 77-fold forgiveness that Christ told Peter to extend to people who come to them who have sinned against them. It evokes the year of Jubilee, observed once for every seven sets of seven years, which is going to be significant in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus comes into the synagogue and reads from Isaiah 61, which is all about the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. So again, there's, there's something that Luke is doing very carefully here, saying he's throwing signals at us. Jesus is the one who is coming to set you free. The Jews who had read this genealogy, which those were significant. You read the Old Testament, you can't hardly get out of a book of the Bible without reading genealogies because it's the way in which they trace the historical work of God and what he's leading up and getting ready to do. And so that's why Luke puts it here. Because Jesus is the one who is coming to fulfill the promise of the Jubilee in Luke chapter 4, which is foreshadowed two chapters earlier when the summons to report home for a census recalls the Jubilee command to return to one's own family property back in Luke chapter 2. So this Jubilee theme, this theme of being released from debts and set free once and for all is being communicated through Luke's genealogy. Luke's genealogy thus is making a claim about Jesus' identity. He gives Jesus the place of ultimate significance in world history. It includes and highlights his descent from David by the non-royal line as the prophesied messianic son. However, he's more than just a new David. David has his own special place in this genealogy as well, as does Abraham. But Jesus' position is the ultimate place, the 77th position, which surpasses every predecessor from Adam onwards. He's greater than Enoch, greater than Adam, greater than Abraham, greater than David. He is the consummation point of all of human history that we have been waiting for since Adam in Genesis chapter 1. So I think that's what Luke is trying to communicate is the reason for his genealogy here. So secondly, let's come to place his redemption, the redemption in this genealogy. What is going on in it that is good news for us. Well, look at the flow of the story again. In Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, John was baptized, or Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and immediately after being anointed for his earthly ministry, announced publicly as the Son of God, we get this genealogy, and then Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And in between these, so in between those two events, of Jesus' baptism and Jesus' temptation by the devil in the wilderness is this genealogy tracing Jesus' lineage back some 76 generations all the way to Adam. What on earth is Luke trying to show us by inserting his genealogy in the middle of a story? Well, Luke takes this genealogy back past Abraham, past David, all, well, David first, then Abraham, all the way back to Adam. He completes his very long list of names like this in verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam, the son of God. A voice just announced from heaven that Jesus was the son of God. 
And now Luke is telling us that Adam is the son of God. Well, what Luke is doing is that literary thing where he places two characters next to each other to make a comparison. He wants us to think of Adam as we head into the story of the devil tempting Jesus. He wants us to remember Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent came into the garden to try to ruin humanity, and he did. Remember what happened there? Adam's in a perfect garden with a belly full of everything good, all that God had generously provided for him, but instead of submitting to God's authority and trusting in God's provision, he stood by while his wife listened to the lies of the devil and transgressed the one and only restriction that God had given them, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam, the son of God, and Eve, his wife, ate the fruit that looked pleasing to the eye, the fruit that they believed would make them like God, the fruit that would eventually bring death into the entire world. And all this Luke brings to mind by reminding us that Jesus is the son of Adam, the son of God. With the very next verse, we find Jesus not in a cultivated garden, but in a desolate wilderness, and not with a full belly, but fasting for 40 days. And the devil comes to tempt him like that snake did, sneaking into the garden. Will Jesus, the Son of God, succeed where Adam, the Son of God, failed? Well, when the devil addresses Jesus by saying, if you're the Son of God, do this, the phrase, Adam, the Son of God, should still be ringing in our ears. If you really are the new and better Son of God, the one who thinks he can undo the mess made by the original Adam, the one who's the better Adam, the better son of God, then do this. This taunt harkens back to his victory in Eden, but the devil will not gain victory over the son. Jesus did what Adam did not do and was unable to do. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin, Hebrews 4.15. And through his perfect obedience to God, Obedience that led all the way to his atoning death on a Roman cross, Jesus did, in fact, undo the mess made by Adam. And this calls to mind Paul's teaching that Christ is the second Adam, the beginner of a new humanity. In 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So there is no reason to think Luke was ignorant of this idea since he was with Paul as much as anyone. Remember, he helped Paul write along his missionary journeys. He was learning from Paul all along the way. But if this was before his mind, then one reason he inserted the genealogy here was to stress that Jesus is a new and second Adam whose ministry will be to create and assemble a new race of humans who are not marked by either Jewishness or non-Jewishness, but by the dove-like character of the Holy Spirit as they follow him. This is really striking because it emphasizes that Luke's genealogy stretches all the way back from Adam, or to Adam. And in a, in a day where ethnic diversity and hatred were raised to almost religious levels, we see it throughout the Gospel of Luke, we do well to reflect even now that even in our diversity, humanity is one. In his provision for humanity, Jesus represents all of us. It's easy to let our nationality, our race, our social status blind us to this fundamental truth. As human beings, we not only share a planet, we share a relationship to each other because we all descend from the one man. Transcending that is the fact that Jesus, as a son, offers all an opportunity to come back 
Because he's not just the son of Abraham and David, he's the son of Adam. He's for humanity. He's not just limiting his work to the Jewish people. We've already seen that. That's made clear in Luke chapter 1 in the prophecies. It's made clear in the ministry of John the Baptist. And it's made clear now here in the genealogy. Over and over again so far in Luke's gospel, he's saying, this Savior is for the world. This Savior is for all people. Luke's, a, Luke's with the apostle to the Gentiles. He's living with Paul. He's watching the gospel go forward. And he's writing this gospel to show those people, this gospel, this Messiah is for you. And Luke would be writing to us this morning and saying, Heritage Baptist Church of Owensboro, Kentucky, this gospel is for you as well. So that's the redemption that's found in it, this idea of a second Adam, that Christ descends from the line all the way back, the human line all the way back to Adam, and now as a second Adam, he takes on the serpent in the wilderness, defeats him, resists his temptations, which the first Adam failed to do. So now we come finally to the relevance of this genealogy. We've looked at the reason for it, the redemption in it, and now the relevance of it. So what does Luke show us in this genealogy that we need to learn about ourselves? Well, he shows us Adam, and he shows us Noah, and he shows us Abraham, and he shows us David, all these great historic heroic figures of the Old Testament. These people did some amazing things. They did some heroic things, and many of them believed against hope against all hope in the promises of God. But you know what else we learn about the people that are listed in this genealogy? that all these heroic figures, they were all sinners. They're all sinners. Adam plunged us all into sin with his rebellion. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was a liar and a coward. David was an adulterer and a murderer. And when you study this genealogical tree, yes, you find heroes, but that's not the main point. You find sinners. This family tree teaches us our sin and our need for grace. Here's what Phil Riken says about this genealogy. He says, They were guilty, that is, the people in this genealogy, of the same kinds of sins as we are. All these men were sinners. It's nice to think that our ancestors were noble and good and they did something heroic. This is one of the reasons people like to study their family trees. Whether they were heroic or not, the people who came before us were just as deeply flawed as we are. We can infer this from the mere fact that they were human beings, but we can also prove it from the pages of the Bible. Consider some of the skeletons in the family closet as recorded in the Old Testament. Terah, the father of Abraham, was an idolater. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a cheater and a thief. Judah traded slaves and consorted with prostitutes. David was a murderer and an adulterer. We usually remember these men as heroes, but they were also scoundrels all the way back to Adam. At the taproot of the family tree, like any genealogy, the one in the Gospel of Luke records a long list of sinners. Now, haven't we already seen that in the verse that just preceded the genealogy? Right? What preceded the genealogy? The baptism of Jesus. Why was Jesus receiving the baptism of John? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus didn't need to repent, but he needed to identify with sinners. And so he identifies with sinners in the baptism of John, representing them, saying, I come, I come for these people. I come for people that think that God cannot save them, that God will not save them. These are the people that I have come for. Those who don't think they can be forgiven. Those who think they're too far gone, too far lost, sinned too much. These are the ones that I have come for. 
Adam was not just a son. He was a father, the father of us all. But Jesus is more than just a son as well. He's a savior. Jesus sets us free from the legacy of sin and death that's been passed down ever since Adam through all these other 75 names in addition to Adam. And here's our only hope, my friends. Though we are born and live in sin, and because we sin, we die, we do not have to die ultimately because Jesus is in this genealogy. As the first name in it, that's the greatest news, that Jesus is in this genealogy. Jesus is in this family tree. And Luke is reminding us, even as he shows us this family tree, that we are sinners, yes, but that we have a Savior who is identified with us and will save us to the uttermost. We saw it last week in his baptism. We see it this week in his genealogy. You remember how we said that in the baptism of Jesus, though he was not a sinner and though he did not need to be forgiven, he didn't need to repent, yet he received a baptism of repentance in order to identify himself with sinners who were guilty, sinners who were sinful, who did, who did need to repent and who did need to be forgiven. And he identifies himself in, our, in the baptism of John and in this gene genealogy, he identifies himself with all of us. Luke is telling you and me this morning that Jesus, though he was perfect, though he was sinless, came from a long line of sinners. He's been connected and identifying with sinners ever since his life began. And then Luke restates it, and his whole ministry is built on it. What's the theme verse of Luke over and over again? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And from the very beginning of his ministry, before he even starts it, before he goes to his first synagogue and reads his first passage, which he's going to do in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, as we get into Luke 4, before he does any of that, he says, I want you to know who I'm coming for. I'm coming for the lost. And so it's, we shouldn't be surprised as we move through Luke's gospel that the people you expect to receive him don't receive him. Religious people don't listen to him. Moral people don't like him. Most Jews reject him, but sinners find welcome again and again and again. At his table, under his preaching, around his disciples, they find welcome. And this Luke is telling us, expect this. Expect this right out of the gate. This is why he's come. He comes from a long line of sinners, but he's sinless, and he's coming to save us from our sin. That's the good news. So in verse 31, Jesus is the son of David. He's going to reign as king forever and ever. Jesus is the son of Abraham. He's the one in whom all the promises of God are finally realized. He's the son of Adam. The one who has come as the second Adam to undo what the first Adam did and to do what the first Adam failed to do. And he's the son of God. Jesus is the very son of God. He's the Messiah He's David's heir, so he's the king of all the earth to reign over all of us. He's the heir of Abraham, so that all of God's promises to Abraham are ours in him. He's the second Adam who has lived in our place and fulfilled for us the righteousness that our first Adam, first, the first Adam failed to do for us and reversed the course of Adam's curse so that we can find eternal life with God again. And he's the son of God. And by trust in him, we become the very children 
of our Heavenly Father, having the same benediction pronounced over us that Jesus receives at His baptism. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And here's the good news, is that if we believe in Jesus, we are connected to His genealogy. We are connected from henceforth to His family and in Galatians 3.26, we read, for, you, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We are through faith, through connection to Jesus by faith, granted access into his family. And we can say with John the Apostle, see what great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. So receive that this morning. If you are yet outside of Christ, Jesus invites you into his family. He says, come, look at this list of names. Do you not want to be added into it? You can be added onto this family tree. Don't remain in the family tree of the first Adam, which just brings death. Get in the family tree of the second Adam by faith that leads to eternal life. And receive the lavish love of the Father for you. Luke is reminding us with this simple genealogy that the curse of sin has been broken. It is done for all those who turn from the legacy of the first Adam and receive by faith the better Son of God, the final Son of God, the real Son of God, who will be like, unlike Adam in all the best ways. Because this Adam will be absolutely sinless. This, this Adam's record of righteousness will be totally without blemish. And therefore, when he goes to the cross and he dies, he dies for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the good news that this genealogy communicates. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these words in the Gospel of Luke. Thank you so much for the good news that we find in a list of names. Lord, some of us, when we read this this morning and we heard these list of names, we say, oh boy, this is going to be interesting. But Lord, there is so much here concerning your purposes and what you are doing in the world to bring salvation. And thank you that you brought it through the Lord Jesus Christ, the better son of Adam, the son of God, the one who has come to right the wrongs of our first parents, the one who has come to live in our place and die in our place as he shared in his baptism. And Lord, as you, as Father, as you spoke over him, this is my beloved Son with, you, with whom I am well pleased. Thank you that in and through him, we are granted access into your family and we become children of God. We become sons of God, all of us, through faith in Christ Jesus. So may those of us who are in your family now rejoice, revel, relish the gift that we have received by free grace and mercy alone. And may those of us who are yet in this room outside of that family tree be eager to put our name in that, in that Lamb's book of life through faith in Christ alone. So may you lead them, may you draw them by your Spirit even this morning through this list of names. May, may other names be added to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.